Welcome to this episode in the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the Australian National Centre for Oceans, Resources and Security. Today, this is the second of two episodes which focus on marine engineering in the Royal Australian Navy. After our previous podcast on steam propulsion, today we will discuss the three other means of warship propulsion in the Royal Australian Navy, diesels, gas turbines and electric drive. To tell this story, I'm joined today by Rear Admiral Kath Richards. Rear Admiral Richards joined the Royal Australian Navy in 1989 and attended the Australian Defence Force Academy, where we're podcasting from today. She was awarded the Chief of Defence Force Navy Prize and earned a Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering with First Class Honours. Kath later earned a Masters of Science in Marine Engineering at the University College of London. In her seagoing career, Rear Admiral Richards was the Marine Engineering Officer, or the MEO, of the hydrographic ships Lewin and Melville, and later the frigate Melbourne. And ashore, she has commanded the Royal Australian Navy's Premier Training Establishment at HMAS Cerberus, been Director General of Engineering, and since 2021, Rear Admiral Richards is the Head of Navy Engineering. We're also joined by Captain Ben Hurst, who joined the Navy in 1997 and again specialised in marine engineering. Like Admiral Richards, he was the marine engineering officer of the hydrographic ships Lewin and Melville, but then went on to be the MEO of the tanker Sirius and the large amphibious ship Adelaide. He is now the Director of Fleet Engineering. And joining us online today is Commander Tony Vine, who served in the RAN for 39 years after first joining as a 15-year-old engine room artificer apprentice. Over the next four decades, Tony served on a range of ships and submarines, including four of the six Australian Oberon-class submarines. Tony served on exchange with both the Royal Navy and the Royal Canadian Navy, and he served as the MEO, Marine Engineering Officer, of the submarine Orion and the amphibious ship Manura. He's also served as the Fleet Marine Engineering Officer. Since leaving the Navy, Tony has written a book, High in the Sunlight Silence, the story of 50 trainee pilots at RAAF Narromine, New South Wales, December 1941. Well, first of all, thank you all for joining me today. To set the scene, let's introduce the three different types of propulsion systems we've talking about today. Now, Tony Vine, can you tell us something about diesel propulsion, why it's attractive for use in warships, and what's been the, the Royal Australian Navy's experience with diesel propulsion? Thanks, Rob. I think the question, the second part of the question should be answered first. And back in 1914, the only diesel-powered vessels in the RAN fleet were the submarines A1 and A2, uh, which is probably fortunate because if we'd gone with our previous um, proposal for submarines, they would have been petrol. Um, times have changed, and now we have over 250 diesel-powered vessels have served our nation compared with 237 steamships. So the pendulum has swung fully and probably irrevocably in favour of the diesel. Um, why has diesel overtaken steam or gas turbine as a primary means of propulsion and virtually eliminating steam? And in many cases, it's now restricted gas turbines to a role where they're used for short periods in a sprint mode. The answer is economy. A flexible, well-designed and well-operated diesel machinery plant will allow the engines to be operated at peak efficiency with the result that ships range could be extended. Prior to the introduction to the FFG-7 and ANZAC ships into service, it was quite common for RAN ships to have to refuel multiple times during an exercise 
Um, it was not a common for steam powered frigates and destroyers to have to refuel every 48 hours during major exercises as they burned significant quantities of fuel at high power and were equally inefficient at low speed. A good example is from the 1960s. The standard British Type 12 hull form was powered by two very different main machinery configurations. The first was steam, boilers and turbines, where the ships had a maximum range of 5,000 nautical miles at 12 knots. The second were the diesel-powered Salisbury and Leopard-class frigates. Same hull form, but they could achieve 7,500 miles at 16 knots. The improved efficiency was achieved by replacing the boilers and turbines with eight AFR-1 diesel engines, a variant of what was fitted to the Oberon-class submarine, with four diesels connected to each shaft. This allowed command to connect additional engines as speed was increased to ensure they were always working at maximum efficiency. The trade-off was that the diesel frigates, which were primarily used in early warning or air defence roles, had a maximum speed of only 24 knots against the 30 of the steamers. The RAN Canimba-class LPAs had a similar configuration with three diesels driving each shaft. The RAN's journey to where diesel propulsion has become dominant was a long and slow one. Between the wars, diesel propulsion was limited to the J-class and obviously-class submarines with a handful of auxiliary harbour vessels. The Second World War saw a plethora of small vessels taken up from civilian owners, many of them diesel or petrol engined and used as auxiliary patrol vessels. These vessels and the Fairmile and Harbour Defence motor launchers were almost exclusively operated and maintained by RANVR and RANR ratings. This was a necessity, as the RAN's pre-war cadre of engineering participants stretched thinly to man the existing fleet and the wartime construction fleet of destroyers and corvettes, all of which were steam-powered. The engineers of the small craft were often stokers, many with a background in motor truck vehicle or truck maintenance, but whose technical qualifications fell short of what was required to become direct entry engineering participants. At the end of the war, this vast pool of talent and operating small diesel engines returned to civilian life. The need to maintain and operate diesels remained, albeit on a smaller scale. Well, a pivotal point in emergence of diesel was the early 1960s, with the purchase of the Tun class, the ordering of HMAS Moresby, HMAS Stewart, and the Oberon class submarines, followed by the 20 attack class patrol boats. Until this point, the RAN's engineering training was focused on preparing men to man steam powered ships with only sufficient diesel training to maintain diesel generators. New subcategories of engineering matches for diesel and mechanics engine diesel were introduced, but as a Navy, it took a number of years to develop the experience to safely operate the new fleet. Shortages of diesel-qualified sailors existed well into the 1970s. Indeed, all seven engineering participants on my submarine course in 1977 had posted the course from steamships. In my case, it was from the carrier Melbourne, which was a great incentive to join submarines. The challenge that the Navy took years to even recognise, let alone resolve, was that competency on one diesel platform did not automatically mean that technicians could seamlessly transition to another. As a fleet marine engineering officer in 2003 to six, I was constantly frustrated when posters would post the chief MT as a senior technical officer to a platform on which they'd not previously served simply on the grounds they had a diesel engineering ticket. This policy proposed significant risk to the technical integrity of the platform, 
safety and indeed to the mental health of the sailors involved. These issues, hopefully, are now largely resolved by better pre-joining training regimes and billet prerequisites. Diesel power is here to stay, not just in their original form where engines were connected directly to the shaft, but also in combination with gas turbines and in a variety of diesel electric modes. They will still exist in our future nuclear submarines where a diesel generator and a battery will form the backup propulsion mode in the event that the reactor has been shut down. Thank you. Keith Richards, the next most common propulsion system after diesel and steam is gas turbine and a system you have deep experience with. Can you tell us a bit about gas turbine and what is what are the advantages that this, this provides for naval service? Well, thanks so much and, uh, and thank you for having me here today. Uh, I'm delighted to be a part of this podcast and... Um, Sure, when it comes to uh, gas turbines, I guess the starting point in that question is it hasn't been an easy journey for any of the navies around the world um, in welcoming gas turbines into uh, our fleets. You know, we took a um, essentially a, an aircraft engine and, and had to marinise it. And the early days of marinising gas turbines were pretty tough pretty tough um, and there were some terrific lessons learned out of our UK colleagues in those early days of marinising gas turbines, particularly way back in the 1950s when we had gas turbines installed in, in ships and of course they were quite low down in, in the ship and, uh, and they would stop because the intakes were too close to the waterline. But what that those, those times of, of experimentation led to was we were able to create warship designs which truly, um, if you like, embraced the benefits of the gas turbine. And in short, uh, those are the fact that they have a very small footprint, uh, naturally enough, because they're derived from, from an aircraft um, uh, origin, uh, high power, high power to weight ratio. And of course, weight and displacement is always a challenge in every contemporary warship. Beyond just high power to weight, um, what you get out of a gas turbine is this ability to, if you like, modularize it, to literally put it in a box. And within that box, you can have it almost self-contained uh, with respect to its fuel and its firefighting system and its control and monitoring system. And, and finally, I guess, you have, because of those um, characteristics, the ability to have it as a building block in a part of a broader uh, propulsion system, whether that's um, combining it with diesels or with other modes of power, it's the, an incredibly, let's call it, versatile component. And so those are really the factors which I think saw the rise of the gas turbine throughout the 1960s and 70s and very much see it still as a feature of contemporary uh, warship uh, design, propulsion system design. There are some downsides to gas turbines as well. You know, they have high heat signatures. There can be challenges with emissions. Uh, you have to be profoundly on the ball when it comes to your maintenance. And they demand a high level of instrumentation and uh, very talented, uh, very talented sailors. Uh, that's, that's though something the RAN has 
in abundance. And, uh, and I think on balance, uh, when you look at the characteristics and the benefits of a gas turbine, you'll see them continue to feature in uh, contemporary warship uh, propulsion designs for many years to come. And just a quick follow-up there, Kath. You mentioned that sometimes gas turbines are you know, designed into a warship in combination with diesels, for example. Yeah, sure. But just for the, uh, for the non-engineers like me uh, out there who will be fascinated <laughs> by this podcast, can you just explain briefly what... What, is, what does it mean mm. when you say like a gas turbine in combination? In with combination. Diesel? I guess that gets back to the fact that warships are, they're not ships. By that I mean warships are designed for this purpose of fighting and winning at sea. They're not designed to transport um, a bulk cargo or... Uh, a thousand tourists around the, the Caribbean. You know, warships are designed to fight and win at sea. And that means they need to have this versatility of um, range. They need to have this versatility of speed. Uh, they need to have this versatility in their manoeuvrability. And so what that means to the naval architect is they've got all of these competing things, competing characteristics that they have to get after. And I just want to say, you know, to the naval architects who are listening out there, uh, you're absolutely fabulous and come and work for me. Um, because uh, it's an amazing profession because it's all about trade. What are you going to trade off? because ultimately a warship has to have its design necked down to the point where you can satisfy an extraordinary range of, um, uh, let's say, demands that are put on the ship in order to fight and win at sea and have a competitive advantage over, a, uh, over an adversary. So for... Um, for the, uh, the lay people out there, uh, it means that you look at ways in which you can combine, if you like, these building blocks called prime movers and then offer the commanding officer of that ship maximum flexibility for this whole spectrum of missions that they're going to have to deal with. Um, you know, warships have this characteristic called poise, and persistence. But that what that means for a naval architect is they have to be able to keep this ship at sea at very low speeds and for extended times, potentially months, without burning up a whole lot of fuel. And that's why you see uh, the diesel engine can be incredibly beneficial, particularly when used in an electric power plant arrangement. Alternatively, you know, uh, that commanding officer of a warship could find themselves in a, um, in a pretty hot set of circumstances in a, uh, in a surface confrontation, and they need to move really, really fast. And so when you have the benefit of a gas turbine, which gives you this instantaneous um, kick of speed and the ability to get yourself out of a potential uh, 
uh, situation which is not favourable to you or rather close quickly to engage an adversary, uh, that's the real benefit of having that building block in your propulsion system. So uh, it's about thinking about the propulsion system of a warship as being the series of building block prime movers which get connected together in order to work harmoniously for this incredible variety of mission sets which a ship has to deliver on. It's a fascinating design engineering problem and, and certainly... Uh, yeah, it's not exactly easy. <laughs> <laughs> certainly uh, That's the other true. part of it. it <laughs> it's not easy. It rings true with why you need such, uh, such technically adept sailors. Well, Ben Hurst, the final category that we've uh, mentioned it in the opening today is electric drive, which is seen by some as sort of the future of, uh, of um, warship propulsion. Can you tell us something about its attributes? Yeah, look, thanks, Rob. And I must say, look, also a great pleasure to be part of this discussion alongside two outstanding marine engineers today, especially having, look, having looked up to them both heavily throughout my career. Obviously, my current service with Admiral Richards, but also super exciting to catch up again with Tony Vine, who took me under the wing early in my career and incidentally sat on both of my key uh, marine engineering uh, qualifications when he was the fleet marine engineer officer. So I guess a key reason why I'm uh, sitting here in front of everyone today. But uh, look, following on from those discussions, and, and many of the components and systems discussed by both Admiral Richards and Commander Vine, electric ships, and in particular the electric drives that you talk about, use many of the elements inherent in the design of diesel and gas turbine vessels. As such, the core knowledge and skills we've gained as naval engineers over the many years is applicable to the operation of these platforms. Electric drives, or probably more accurately in that modern sense that we talk about podded propulsion systems or azipods, uh, differ from warships our past warships and other current electrical propulsion systems in that they are centred around a high voltage system, something akin to that of a, of a power station or a power grid. Uh, plus they do not have conventional shaft line or drive trains that we see in the many other platforms that we operate. The Royal Australian Navy first ventured into electric motor-driven propulsion, I, I, you know, um, at the hydrographic survey ship HMAS Moresby that uh, Tony touched on earlier, commissioned in 1964, and ran through to until 1998, uh, then being placed replaced by the current heavy survey ships uh, Lewin and Melville, of which Admiral Richards and I both have been fortunate enough to serve as the engineer officer. All of these ships utilise electric motors driving into a gearbox and down a conventional shaft line. Electricity in these platforms is generated by diesel generators, uh, three for Moresby and four for Lewin and Melville, producing a base four megawatts, 4,000 kilowatts of uh, low voltage power for which all of the ship's systems, including propulsion, runs. Next came the fleet of submarines, Oberons and Collins classes, which use a similar basis of diesel generators charging batteries, um, which then drive electric propulsion motors down the shaft line. But as we move on today, we have three large ships running modern potted systems. The two landing helicopter docks, the amphibious assault ships HMAS Canberra and Adelaide, a real jump back into capital ship operation for the Royal Australian Navy, and the landing ship dock HMAS Chules. HMAS Adelaide uh, was a real privilege for myself to serve as uh, one of the first commander engineers, bringing the ship through into early operation and, and, and early service. Incidentally, Tony's son Gordon has just joined that vessel in the exact same role this last week. Uh, the 
landing helicopter docks use diesel and gas turbine generators to produce a 38 megawatt uh, power plant um, at 6.6 kilovolts or 6,600 volts of high voltage power to run all the ship systems, including the direct high voltage using propulsion pods and bow thrusters. Whilst we are not necessarily pioneering this technology, as this concept um, in various forms has been used widely in the cruise ship industry over the past 20 years, the Royal Australian Navy is one of the leaders in operating potted warships. The key advantages of these ships running potted systems is the internal space in particular on these platforms for the well dock without sacrificing facing draft uh, for those close-in littoral environments that we operate and some of those internal space benefits that we can shuffle things a little bit neater around a, around a vessel. Some of the other benefits, manoeuvrability in port is significantly enhanced by the use of potted systems uh, around that littoral environment again for that you know close-in manoeuvrability and close quarters operating without any assistance in particular tugs and those type of things in and out some of the areas that we're quite often asked to operate. This however has to be balanced off by consideration of the various training requirements, uh, high voltage qualifications and awareness of some of the hazards that exist around high voltage plants that we haven't had in the past, some of the sustainment and maintenance activities that we therefore have to look at and the consequent additional sector of industry support that we therefore look towards in uh, operating these platforms. So I hope that covers uh, what you're after in that uh, Absolutely. system. And, and Tony, I guess, Ben mentioned um, uh, Oberon class submarines and of course they're a classic diesel electric combination but what are the particular challenges in operating you know the machinery systems in a submarine particularly you know conventional diesel electric systems submarine engineering essentially is no different than surface ship engineering the major difference if there is a difference is submarines work in three dimensions um, and it's a dimension of depth uh, that brings the significant challenges to submarine engineering uh, a classic example is if you have a heat interchanger on an air conditioning unit on a ship, it's really only operating at sea pressure plus the pressure of the pump going through it. The same heat ex exchanger on a submarine will have to be able to cope with the pressure right down to the deep diving depth of the submarine. Uh, so you're talking, uh, of in the case of an Oberon class submarine, we use still our systems to 400 pounds per square inch, um, whereas on a surface ship it probably would have only been tested to, to 50 pounds per square inch. So the hull integrity issues, uh, the integrity of your internal systems, they're the most challenging um, physical aspects of engineering on a submarine. Um, there are other issues as well. For example, the submarine engineering officer is also a watchkeeping officer um, as a seaman officer. Um, in my time in submarines, I would be an assistant officer of the watch. I'd be doing navigation, I'd be conning the submarine, I'd be on the periscope, I might be doing weapons employment. Um, all overlaying your duties as a marine engineer. Uh, so you're very heavily reliant on having a good depth engineer, who in the case of a submarine is a chief petty officer, um, and the information feeding back. Um, submarines have led before with safety in the RAN, the hazard risk management system that we currently use, uh, evolved out of the RAN sub safe program, which in turn evolved out of the USN program uh, led by Captain Peter Huguenot. So they're the major challenges. Um, the third dimension, uh, which I think drives a strong safety culture um, and the actual difference in structure of how a marine engineer officer works on a submarine 
against how it would traditionally work on a surface ship. Kath Richards, coming back to you, in the newer ships, there's a, quite a lot more automation, of course, and uh, deep sophistication in machinery and control systems. Can you tell us a bit about what, what this is for and, and, and what it means for the training of your officers and sailors? Sure. The first thing is it's really just the advancement of the technology. And so what you see now is um, when, where we were uh, 20 or 30 years ago as to where we are now, it's the all-pervasiveness of the computer network uh, from two deck and below. And I think uh, historically we saw be it out of the work in the 1960s and, and, and combat systems and the terrific work, I think, um, in particular out of, uh, you know, amazing people like, like Grace Hopper and the role of the uh, development of the USN combat system architecture. Uh, and uh, I think actually she was the, the admiral that, that created the term the bug, which of course is now... <laughs> A worldwide term, isn't it, for, for networks? But we forget that that came out of a naval um, uh, combat system network. Uh, what you've seen over the over the years is the um, is the integration of networks into the control and monitoring systems for those building blocks that I spoke about earlier, that not just the prime mover building blocks, but of course the auxiliary and support systems that not just that don't just feed the building blocks of the prime movers, but also enable the combat system of a warship, that which makes it not just a ship, what makes it a warship uh, to be realised, to bring to life. So everything is connected, right? Everything is connected through instrumentation, through a network, and such that you can control remotely, um, automatically, uh, many of these systems. That presents uh, a range of terrific savings, of course, in terms of a lot of the uh, drudgery, uh, real drudgery out of life below decks, um, for many of our sailors has has reduced the um, the conduct of rounds being with a pencil and a piece of paper in order to look at particular temperatures or pressures as Tony just said uh, that has all been instrumented for them and with that of course you don't have the extraordinary fatigue that you used to have when it came to doing rounds. I think the auxiliary systems monitor on an FFG, uh, and I'm looking across to Ben here, I think they used to walk uh, around about um, 10 kilometres every watch, which is, which is a fair distance uh, when you put a pedometer on them. That was simply going up and down ladders in and out of spaces um, monitoring the machinery. Uh, so auxiliary system monitors were always the fittest on board, <laughs> on board our warships. <laughs> and uh, having done that role nearly uh, 30 years ago now for, um, for well over a year, uh, I can attest that I was pretty fit at the end of being an auxiliary systems monitor. And uh, um, I think to our civilian um, 
colleagues who may be listening from the Merchant Marine. Um, I think the, the equivalent would be what you'd call a third-hand greaser. Um, it could be a pretty miserable job at times. But I think that's the first thing, is that the instrumentation has um, taken a lot of the um, hard physical manual labour out of running a plant safely. That said, it demands a whole lot of other skills. Um, sometimes uh, it can be quite difficult to imagine what's happening in your engine room when all that you see is a glass screen in front of you and a mouse. Uh, not so much for the younger generation, I guess the digital natives, they're really, really comfortable with that. Um, but for some of us um, who may be a little bit, let, let me say diplomatically, more mature, it was a bit of a shock in the system. I can remember when you found yourself then operating machinery through a, what is essentially a cockpit arrangement. Um, of consoles and glass screens and touch pads when previously you were used to um, handling the machinery and starting and stopping it. Uh, just the scale of instrumentation, I think, in a modern warship also can't be underestimated. Uh, I learnt in my first warship around 350 parameters. In other words, the, the, the temperature, the pressure, the, the settings, um, the trips uh, associated with all of the auxiliary machinery and, uh, and prime movers. Uh, when you look at uh, what uh, Captain Hurst just was speaking about there, the, the LHD, you're looking at about well over 50,000 inputs. So scale is extraordinary, scale is extraordinary. And what that means for our sailors is that there are now opportunities for simulation and emulation in their training, whereas before you had to do it live, if you like, on the equipment. It also means that uh, for many, um, it's a it's a smoother transition because they are those digital natives and they are used to interacting with the technology. So many see that instrumentation as being just a natural thing and part of their lives and, uh, and they, um, they thrive. Uh, they thrive in the control rooms. Um, and I think more broadly, though, uh, it means you really need to know your ship because when it goes wrong and when the screen is black, um, you can't, uh, th there's no way to just, um, a as a sailor or as an officer on a warship, you can't just go home or call for help. You have to be able to figure things out from first principles. So interestingly enough, as we've become more automated and we've got these benefits of simulation and some of the drudgery has been removed, uh, it actually means that at the same time, you must still be brilliant at your basics. You must know your ship, you must know your ship systems, you must understand their failure modes and their operating modes uh, intimately and you must apply yourself to those every day. So. I think that's probably the aspect that endures. And for any of our listeners there who perhaps don't fully appreciate the level of heat and hard work that uh, being an engineer or an engineering officer was in the old Navy, please do have a listen to our 
previous podcast on steam propulsion and you'll get a very strong sense of what that was like. Yes. <laughs> yes. Ben, ben Hurst, the, the Navy's always had a very close relationship with its dockyards and, and with other shore support services and they're essential, of course, to keep our ships at sea. Can you tell us a little bit about this aspect and how this has evolved over time? Yeah, look, Navy has a clear need for support you know, from our dockyards and shore services. And as such, it's really quite vital that we maintain these close relationships in order to keep our vessels seaworthy. Whilst our uniformed personnel operate and conduct routine maintenance of our platforms in the operating cycle and when we're underway, heavy refit periods do require significant additional and specialist skill sets in order to meet our seaworthy requirements and obligations. Traditionally, the Navy did much more of our work in-house. However, with the increase in this complexity and rapidly changing technologies, it would be rather short-sighted, I think, for the Royal Australian Navy not to leverage off that industry capacity and knowledge to assist us. This industry contracted depot maintenance of modern warships is managed through the Capability Acquisition and Sustainment Group, CASG, whereas areas such as the Naval Construction Branch are heavily involved with our industry partners in order to acquire and build the next generations of our warships. Our contracting of support services has evolved over time into various partnerships or alliances, I think you can say, whereby Navy and industry personnel fill the roles in combined organisations, sometimes operating under the structure of a general manager or reporting to a board. Uh, this gives some significant benefits whereby all are working towards a common goal and share the passion for our Navy and in delivering the seaworthiness aspects we require for our ships. Well, looking to the future a bit, Tony Vine, uh, the intention is for the next generation of submarines to have nuclear propulsion. And as we heard at the very end of our last podcast, this is in some ways a, a, a renewal of, of the Royal Australian Navy's familiarity with steam propulsion. But can you tell us a bit about how this mode of propulsion will differ from the diesel-electric propulsion of our current Collins-class submarines? Yeah, sure. Um, essentially, we're going back to steam. Um there's many people, some people won't be aware, but a nuclear submarine is essentially a steam plant where the fluid is heated using the nuclear fission uh, and that in turn produces steam, which drives a, a steam turbine and, and steam auxiliaries. So in some ways we're going to have to recover some of the skills that we, we've lost with the, the ending of the steam era around about 2000. But a major factor we're going to have to come to terms with is that the level of oversight of the submarines um, that we have now, which is quite high, is going to have to increase. Our subsafe program is quite a simple program compared with what the Americans operate on their nuclear submarines to keep them safe and to ensure that the um, technical integrity is kept safe. So I think a significant challenge we're going to have is to um, adapt, uh, particularly uh, regardless of who we buy the submarine off. Um, we're going to have to come to terms with that. We're going to have to very slowly build our expertise in operating the nuclear plant. Um, there'll be significant challenges. Uh, in terms of the plant, um, once you get outside the reactor, it's essentially a submarine. So I think that... Uh, the major challenge will remain within the reactor compartment. Well, Kath Richards, you're the 
head of Navy Engineering. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what would you like to uh, add to Tony's point about this? You're going to own some ah. of this problem for some time to come. And what's this going to mean for the engineering, the Navy Engineering fraternity into the future as well? Sure. I guess the starting point for that is that very quietly since 1972, indeed for, for half a century now, um, our Navy has been working and welcoming nuclear-powered warships to our shores. And that has always fallen invariably to the head of naval engineering to work with um, the existing nuclear regulator in Australia and our, um, our Australian um, National uh, Nuclear Scientific and Technology Organisation to ensure that when we receive a nuclear-powered warship that we can demonstrate to the Australian public that um, this vessel is safe and we are monitoring it and um, we are absolutely committed to maintaining the social licence of the Australian people. Uh, and of course we publish um, those visit uh, reports um, on their completion. So this journey of nuclear has been happening for quite some time. Uh, now, of course, there's the announcement of, um, of AUKUS and the Nuclear Powered Submarine Task Force, uh, who I work very closely with. I think here, the first thing is, it's the next step for uh, for engineering and for naval engineering. It is an extraordinary step and it will demand the highest levels of uh, professionalism, academic excellence, uh, attention to detail, absolute responsibility, um, oversight, as Commander Vine said, uh, and we will commit to that. We are committed to that. And I'm confident we will, we will do that. We will, because the issue when dealing with um, the profound benefits that nuclear technology affords our nation when it is applied in a submarine um, is that we also need to realise that there, that our starting point is safety is everything. There can never be a, um, a breach of safety. And so I think as we go on this journey, um, with that as our clear and absolute headmark, um, it will drive everything else. It will drive everything else in the program and you do see that absolute commitment to safety and the maintenance of our social license with the Australian people is fundamental as we move forward. That's a wonderful point I think to bring to a wrap uh, this fascinating uh, edition of the podcast because it is very much a, a future looking uh, issue that we're having to to understand marine engineering or the future of marine engineering in the Royal Australian Navy uh, in the context of now nuclear engineering as well. So finally, can I ask each of you for uh, 
either an engineering sea story or just some final conclusions that you might like to uh, give to our audience today. Can we start with you, Tony? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, mine dates right back to uh, June 2000. I was the engineer of the amphibious transport Menorah, and we just sailed from Townsville to the Solomon Islands after an insurrection up there to do some peace uh, evacuation of Australian personnel. Uh, and no sooner had we left Townsville, I was called down to number two engine room because they'd stopped the starboard shaft because of a defect. Um, the starboard shaft is driven by three diesel engines through a gearbox in number one engine room and two of the diesels are in one engine room and a third in number two. And I arrived to find that the bearing on a long lay shaft between the engine clutch and the gearbox had failed catastrophically. And as the shaft turned with the gearbox, the entire shaft train had been stopped and locked by the engineer officer watch. I briefed the captain at the nature of the defect and we agreed that as the Prime Minister had already been advised we'd sailed, we'd continue on one shaft towards the Barrier Reef whilst we tried to investigate repair options. We very quickly established there were no spare bearings on board, so I convened a council of war in the space with my four senior chiefs and my deputy engineer. Um, and I asked them all for you know, their opinion on what we could do. Well, my high-power chief thought we could put a sling around the, the shaft and every time it wore out, we'd change it. So we banished him to the switchboard. My chief, Chippy, he wanted to turn up a wooden bearing and that every time it burned out, we just put another wooden bearing in. My chief, Chippy, uh, chief Tippy, wanted to melt down every spare white metal bearing on board and cast the machine a new bearing. Possible, but time was against it. And it was at this point the able seaman of the space, or called James, interjected, questioned our collective competency and wisdom, and to be blunt, he stated we're all idiots, and there was a simple solution. I thought I showed pretty good restraint, and I politely asked James what he'd do, to which he replied, I'd just go next door to number one engine room, disconnect the coupling where the shaft connects to the gearbox, and we can be underway on both shafts doing 19 knots within an hour. James had the solution. For the loss of only one to two knots top speed, we could safely run with two diesels on one shaft and three on the other. The lesson I took home that day was that rank and age doesn't make one an expert. Often it's a young sailor who works in a space or on a piece of equipment that truly knows how the system works. 13 years later, James was a Chief Petty Officer MT on HMAS Parramatta and which my younger son, Gordon, was a DMEO. And by all accounts, he was an excellent chief. Ben, from you. Yeah, look, uh, uh, certainly uh, a, a number of stories spring to mind, in particular those surrounding our people and the decisions and issues that uh, face us all, much like Tony said. So I think I'll still tell my story about my experience around one ship name, HMAS Adelaide, but two different platforms and human elements, that of the professional warfighters and the professional engineers that we all are. Uh, first of all, I think of the time when we were called to action stations in the Persian Gulf while I was the Deputy Engineer and Damage Control Officer of the Guided Missile Frigate HMAS Adelaide. Watching a team that was going about their routine daily business, uh, patrolling the terminals, we were at lunch, um, have to respond to a rapidly escalating situation whereby our boarding party, which included a number of our engineering staff, 
were conducting routine inspections on a grounded vessel um, and faced being taken, in, taken into a hostage situation. Things escalated quite quickly. There was a number of other foreign warships in the area and, um, and, and, and a lot of weapons and things were uh, engaged um, a, a, around the theatre. Our training and professionalism was really highlighted by the ship achieving action and getting ourselves to that full action stations. And I was consequently able to report this within a record time for the ship in less than half the assessed time required during training and what we'd ever achieved before. So it really showed me um, what we could pull together. The second part around the engineering piece is the early lessons learned in the potted propulsion and having to take the LHD Adelaide uh, into an emergency docking period after a prolonged transit and significant degradation of one of our main pod bearings. Uh, a significant difference of opinion between command, myself as the commander engineer, the marine engineer officer, uh, shore support agencies, the ship builders, the, the pod original manufacturer and our technicians on board, um, all with great intentions and wanting to meet the outcome and to understand the root cause, in addition to fixing the problem. But the sorts of questions we faced, you know, should we just run on the one pod and not load up the other pod, which could have also been sub subjected to some of the same sort of damage? Should we stay put? Should we be towed? Should we continue on and gather more data to collectively build the knowledge of the enterprise. Look, I think in the end we all came together with a safe but not without risk solution. I think myself, you know, much like having a new baby, was awake every night uh, going down and personally checking oil samples and pods and points uh, throughout as we nervously got the ship back. But we got there under our own power to a dockyard for rectification, analysis of the issues and remediation. Look, this was all coordinated by the engineering command team on board up through that uh, executive authority and command on board, um, making that ultimate decision. I guess I really bring these up because, it, to me, my career has been challenging, exciting and rewarding. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I think the final way I can sum that up is my father always introduces me to people as this is my son Ben. He is the only person I know who loves getting up and going to work each day and I can honestly say that is absolutely the truth. I think it's been a fantastic career and, um, and, and what we do out there um, I think makes a real difference. Thanks. And Kath Richards, some concluding thoughts from you. Wow, thank you. And uh, those stories do make me think um, the first thing is that it's always dangerous territory when an admiral starts to tell stories, isn't it? So I'll probably side skip an element of that and, and just conclude by saying our Navy is at an inflection point, an extraordinary inflection point in terms of the technology. But I hope people can hear that from, from the passion of the other speakers that uh, we're an amazing group of people, marine engineers and engineers more broadly in Navy, um, passionate, committed, focused. And those qualities will stand us in good step as we, we move forward. It's not going to be an easy path though ahead. And the absolute commitment to safety, absolute excellence, uh, procedural um, uh, focus and diligence, and above all else, profound responsibility, um, not just to one another uh, or to our ship or to our commanding officer, but to the Australian people 
and indeed the people of the world when it comes to nuclear technology. This is the path that lies ahead for engineering in our Navy. I'm confident that we continue to attract amazing Australians who are prepared to, to follow that pathway. And it's, a, it's just an absolute privilege to be the head of Naval Engineering. And I feel um, uh, blessed and honoured at, at holding the role that I do. Well, sadly, that's all we do have time for today. And again, my deep thanks to Rear Admiral Kath Richards, Captain Ben Hurst and Commander Tony Vine. Now, today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales with the assistance of the university's creative media unit. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Once again, thank you all for joining us today and if you like this episode, please do let other people know about the Naval History Podcast Series. Goodbye for now.